How's it going? How's the baby rearing? It's going okay. She's very inconsistent with her sleep schedule. Sounds like a baby. <laughs> Hello, Sean. Hi, Derek. I have a thing I want to complain to you about. Okay. And it is obviously not your fault, but it's a Rails thing, and I want to. It's some... always my fault. Yeah, it's true. You are the personification of Rails in my mind. So today I was working on a thing. It's funny because just last week, I think, we were talking about how I started to see more type inconsistencies in my Ruby programming. Just from oh, being and now you're looking for them in Rails? Well, that doesn't no. end well. A problem arose from them, from the specific problem that I called out. So one of the things I talked about was like parameters now are often either action control parameters or like an empty hash or something like that because people try and default them to like a sane value. Oh, and you're running into the fact that we don't inherit from hash anymore. Right. So what happened is what I wanted to do was I have this, I have this model that has an attribute on it. It's perfectly valid for that attribute to be null in some cases. In this particular controller, I want to default that attribute to something. Okay. So my typical go-to for that would to be like do strong parameters stuff, right? And then say right. dot reverse merge default values. Seems fine. So that's what I would do. That results in a deprecation warning in Rails 5 because reverse merge isn't implemented by action controller parameters. Open an issue. We should implement reverse merge. That was my first step. I was like, okay, probably should implement reverse merge. Okay, but oh, okay. did somebody did somebody close it? Like, you yeah, we don't want reverse merge. No, I haven't gotten Sorry, that far no. yet. <laughs> I haven't gotten that far yet. So my next step was like, okay, so that's a thing I'm gonna I'm gonna do. But let's get this working. So let's say like, because it, it the deprecation message has like a link to all the methods that are available on action controller parameters, and one of them is merge. And I was like, okay, well, right. what's a reverse merge? But a merge, right? <laughs> Just in reverse. <laughs> so I changed my code to defaults dot merge something. Obviously, that doesn't work because defaults right, because is a hash. hash. Right now, I'm realizing why reverse merge. I mean, reverse merge just needs to wrap whatever argument you pass it in parameters. Hang on. <laughs> so, okay. so I'm thinking like, okay, so that doesn't work because I'm calling merge on a hash. So it's still I still have a problem there. I get a different deprecation warning because of something that Rails is doing internally, and it's whatever. So I was like, okay, I see why that doesn't work, because that's that situation where I think I have the same object here, but I don't. I have a hash in one case, and I have action controller parameters in another case. So let me take my defaults and make them action controller parameters. So now I wrap my defaults in action controller parameters. So now I have action controller parameters on one side, action controller parameters on the other side. So I call defaults.merge, you know, strong parameters stuff. That errors... <laughs> Because merge under the hood, guess what it does? On Converts to a hash? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so I was getting a deprecation message about calling 2H, and I was like, I'm not calling 2H so anywhere. Here's what like, you need to do. <laughs> or 2Hash, I think is what it was doing. I don't remember. You need, I think you need to permit your defaults <laughs> before you merge. No, but we should totally just implement reverse merge. That just seems like an oversight. Yeah, I think reverse merge should be implemented. And then I also think that both of them will need to check on the, like before calling. I mean, you can also just do square brackets or equals. Yes, I could. But this is like, a, this is a thing I've done for many years now. Sure. And now sure. all of a sudden but I like, can't is do it, it. Is it just one value? Yes. <laughs> You're just doing this because you want to be expression oriented? I'm doing it because it's just a pattern I followed like for sure, several enough. years now. No, right? yeah. And, and omitting reverse merge absolutely just seems like an oversight. Well, and also I think that the implementation of both merge and reverse merge are going to need to special the case, special case the case, special case the case, where they already receive uh, something that is action controller parameters. Oh, yeah. We have a method that we call whenever anything goes through anything, which is just like try to wrap this thing. Right, but the implementation of merge just calls 2H on whatever it was given, or 2Hash, or whatever. It does something that causes a deprecation if you pass it something that's already... If you pass a, a parameters to... Yes. to merge on action th controller parameters. This also sounds like you should open an issue. Yeah. These both sound like bugs. So this thing, it, it, it resulted in a... I was in the Ruby chat room in ThoughtBot, and I was like, this is going to sound really dumb. 
but how do I set a default value in a controller? <laughs> like, what? Like, I, I can't do this in the way that I've been doing it before. So ultimately, I could have done what you suggested, but what I did was take the params, do my standard munging that I was doing before, and then call two unsafe H, because I was right. or two H, or either two H or two unsafe H. If you're doing permissions, like I wasn't actually doing any permit stuff because for this use case it wasn't necessary so i i called to unsafe h to be to sure. say like give me all of the parameters and right. then i call reverse merge on that for listeners who are not familiar with the difference 2h on parameters will only include keys that you've permitted whereas to unsafe h is basically like calling permit bang and then 2h on that right and permit bang permits everything in my case that's what i wanted to do and it wasn't too bad like it was like okay that's acceptable, I guess. <laughs> it's a little I mean, weird no, to have this. No, it's not, but... Right. I was not pleased with the solution, but I, and I was like, I'm going to yell at Sean as the personification of Rails. Uh, you, know, you know what I think a better option would have been? Open an issue? Besides, well, but then also <laughs> open for your a code while you wait for the issue to be fixed. <laughs> Use square support, brackets? deprecation, silence, <laughs> I will. I have never done that, I don't think. Except, I guess I have when libraries are doing something I can't control or whatever. And well, I guess this would be like, If you're doing a thing where it's just like, this is obviously an oversight, this method's not actually going to get removed in 5.1, and if this issue I open gets closed, then I'll go back and change this. Right. Yeah. Or just leave the deprecation there, I guess. Oh, I couldn't see it in my test. I wouldn't be able to see it in my tests and, and live with myself. Especially since in my tests it gets triggered like six or seven times. And it's like, okay. This is why I miss working with you. That <laughs> statement right there. <laughs> I cannot abide by deprecation warnings, and you you miss that. Right. Okay. Yeah, you don't just let them sit around for three-plus no. years and then complain when the thing that was deprecated three-plus years ago is removed. Yeah, I don't like deprecations. I don't like output of any kind that isn't green dots. So no logging output in my tests, no warnings from, like, Capybara WebKit or something like that. I try and squash right. those if I can. Basically, I just want to see green dots all the time. So that was my, like, this should not be that hard. And it's surprising, I guess, I, let me look and see if, like, I don't know. I'll look later to see if anybody's opened an issue about reverse merge already. But, yeah, I was hoping that your answer would be, like, we should totally implement reverse merge, and we should probably also handle that case where you pass me something that's already an action controller yeah. parameters or something. Yeah, the thing you've been doing for years should continue to work, right. generally speaking. <laughs> why, and, and like people were asking, the other question came up is like, why are you using reverse merge? Like, why did you word it that way to use reverse merge? And like, I actually think reverse merge is one of those active support things that I just like, it makes sense when you want to, you're like, you're saying here are some parameters and then apply these defaults. I would love to have with defaults be an alias for that method. Like reverse merge makes, like is very descriptive of what it does. Yes. Well, kind of. If, yeah. like, the translation of reverse merge means it's merge, but, like, it reverses the the order of arguments, but it's not actually the order of arguments. It's reversing the caller and the callee. But yeah. if that, you know, if that mentally makes sense, it's a good name. But it's not descriptive of how it's always used, which is for defaults. Yeah, it's a good point. But, yeah, I just prefer to have those lines be, like, what am I talking about? Like, I want that line to start with params, because in that method, I'm talking about params. And then I'm also just decorating them with, with defaults, which is a much better name. I like that, with defaults. It's good. Yeah. I'll also open that pull request. <laughs> yeah. So that's uh, that was my adventure this morning that I was going to complain to you about. And I'm glad that uh, I will now. I can I can probably even fix some of these things beyond just opening an issue. Yeah. I mean, most of them are pretty easy to fix. Yeah. Cool. Do you know why we don't inherit from hash anymore? Is that something that you think would be an interesting topic to dive further into? Yeah, I think we should. I mean, it makes, I, I think it makes sense, but go ahead. What is the sales pitch? So basically, action controller parameters to do its job correctly, more or less, I think there's other invariants besides this one, but the most important invariant is that any values contained inside of it have been quote unquote sanitized, meaning that there's no hashes in there. Or arrays. Uh, mm -hmm. So if any of those values are in there, they've been wrapped in action controller parameters as well so that they get permitted and don't appear as scalar values. Right. And we do that consistently throughout the API. But the issue is when we inherit from hash, hash is a mutable object. I mean, all objects are mutable because it's Ruby. But like hash has a bunch of methods available on it which mutate things. And if we subclass hash, we have to remember... A, we have to care about all of the invariants that hash has, which we may or may not be upholding. Hash is a pretty easy one to keep those invariants on. But we also have to make sure that we're overriding every possible method on hash that mutates itself. And that includes 
anything that comes from future versions of Ruby, but also importantly, it includes any monkey patches that other libraries add to hash that might mutate it. Because when you're mutating the hash and not going through a method that constructs a new hash, like the, there's only one way to construct an instance of action controller parameters. And that constructor makes sure that the invariants we need to be upheld are uh, in fact upheld. But if you can just mutate things out from under us, bad things can happen. So right. we just don't inherit from hash anymore. And we more or less got rid of all of the methods which mutate. Right. With the exception of square brackets equals and like a few of the other really, really important ones. But like you don't need select bang on actual controller parameters. We actually might even have select bang. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the main thing is like if a monkey patch adds a new method to hash, which mutates... Or if a, a future version of Ruby adds a new method to hash which mutates, it won't accidentally completely break active controller parameters because we no longer inherit from hash. Now, the problem is there's a bunch of code both in Rails and elsewhere that's like, is a hash. If argument is a hash do x, and that, and that code now no longer takes parameters, which ultimately, I guess, is probably like, should be thing.respond to to hash or to hsh, whatever the strict, mm-hmm. like, isn't implemented on array, but is implemented on anything that is effectively a hash. Right. Which I don't even know if action controller parameters implements that method, but yeah, we're also seeing like similarly like the is a hash thing reminded me now that Ruby two four is out. People who have who are upgrading their apps to Ruby two four are seeing deprecations in libraries where they said is, is a, a fixum is an integer is or is a fixum or whatever the case whatever one they got rid of fixum 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 and now it's just number right or something like that. No, it's integer. Oh, it is integer. Okay, yeah. Integer used to be an alias for fixnum, and now it's right. the thing that represents both fixnum and right. bignum. Which we found generally means, for most cases, and you can just fix this by saying is an integer, and it's fine. Right, which is also backward, like forwards compatible if you do that on, on old versions right. of Ruby. Right, right. So that's what... Because I think so, bignum inherits from fixnum, doesn't it? I don't know. Fixnum, fixnum's a subclass of integer. Yeah, mm-hmm. so integer is the superclass of both fixnum and bignum. Okay. Well, there we go then that's why that works as long as you weren't trying to care about like whether or not something was larger than uh pointer size right and then if you were caring about that the ruby core team has said you don't get to care about that in ruby <laughs> which is also <laughs> fine <laughs> yeah so i mean that all makes sense to me and that also means that like every time ruby added a method to hash you also had to reconsider all of those things. Like, does this is this mutating things for us, or is like, do we need to do something special here to prevent this, or are people going to shoot right. themselves in the foot by calling this method unknowingly? So, not having it inherit from hash seemed to make sense. Yeah, um, I think that change came out in four two, right? I think. No, then, it was five. It was it five? Yeah. Huh. Wow. So that pull request sat around for a while then, because the we looked at the pull request today, and it's like a year and a half old or something like that. But um, Rails five is well over a year old at this point oh well okay almost actually not well over a year old almost year old (laughs) well never mind then and 5.1 is in beta so you know yeah i think 5.0 beta 1 was about a year ago i think that was february right and the release candidate or the actual release shipped at RailsConf or around RailsConf? the release candidate race car one shipped at (laughs) RailsConf. that's right i remember that I was so I was so excited to make that pun. I I, I, I don't know. I thought that pun was so funny. <laughs> Puns aren't funny. <laughs> I thought it was funny. That's why that's why I demanded to be allowed to go up on stage before the keynote and announce it to everybody because I just <laughs> wanted to make that joke so badly. <laughs> cool. So the other things I've been doing is I've been going through job applicants, which is fun. Sounds fun. So I haven't mentioned this on the show for some silly reason, but if you are a Rails developer in the Boston area, Raleigh, Raleigh area, New York City area, San Francisco area, or Austin area, ThoughtBot is hiring web developers in all of those locations. We're also hiring designers in several of those locations and a design director in London. So if you're interested in working for us, you can check out thoughtbot.workable.com or thoughtbot.com slash jobs, which I think will take you there. And you can see all the positions we have open there. But I've been going through... We've hired a couple people in Boston now, and I've been going through and helping out. The Austin queue got a little backed up, so I've been going through and looking at job applicants there. And it's interesting to see, you know, we ask a couple of questions, and we've been, it's been fun to, like, play with the questions a little bit. Like, Chad's been changing them up a little bit and saying, like, because we noticed we were getting a lot of applicants who, like, didn't know even know Ruby or had no had no experience shipping Ruby or Rails apps or Elixir apps or anything like that. So we added a couple questions that were like, 
I have done test-driven development, and you just check it to say yes. And like, I have shipped production Elixir in Phoenix or Ruby on Rails apps, and you check it to say you have or whatever. And the idea being like, this will let us, this will be a quick thing. But what we found is like, like if, if you were going to apply, even though you don't know those things, you're perfectly willing to check the box as well. Right. right. And people who did that were more often than not low quality applicants anyway, that we could pretty quickly suss out. So we weren't weeding any of those out. But then what we were doing was people who would be like maybe good apprentice candidates who haven't done test driven development yet. They would be honest. Like if they happen to be a good applicant, they would be honest and say, I haven't done that. And then we would look at those answers. And potentially, I think in the earliest implementation of that, we were like automatically disqualifying people who answered no to that. And it was like, oh, okay. So what we found is we can't put any process in place that will discourage applicants that are low quality applications, which was interesting to find. And it's just like a thing you have to sift through. One of the things we did is stop advertising on the free on the free job boards, like right. Indeed and places like that, because the signal to noise ratio out of there was just too low, I guess I want to say low signal to high noise, whatever that is. Yep. Sounds right. <laughs> but yeah, and then one of the things we asked for is a code sample. And a lot of people will just send me a link to their GitHub like public profile, which With just no indication, no of, indication of what's cool, like what they'd like for I me mean, to look if, at. And if like, nothing else, at least GitHub does now allow you to choose the six repositories that show up on your profile. Oh, I didn't know that was under my that you could choose that. I'm going to have to go and check. Yeah, that you out. can pin them, which is good because like mine was showing like my dot files up there. <laughs> yeah. And you can also have it show not just repositories that are under your name, but it can be any repository that you contribute to. So like I can have Rails show up as one of my pinned repositories, which is nice. Oh, that's interesting. That would be a welcome like social feature from GitHub is like if people are using GitHub as a resume and I know that that's a sometimes controversial statement, but nonetheless, whether people expect that people will be able to have GitHub resumes, people are using them as resumes, right? As I'm seeing, like people just sending me like, here's my GitHub. Sure. Right. So I mean, some well, sort if of nothing way else, to... it's a thing that's like expected, right? That you have a GitHub profile with stuff on it. Sometimes. I mean, we've talked to people who don't. Uh, it depends. But uh, it's a thing that is certainly is reasonable. It's not the right, right word, but like it's, it's common. the norm. It's common. I would yeah. say it's common. It's certainly more common than not. But it is also common for the people who send me just like, here's a GitHub profile for it to be like exercises and things that right. they've done because like all of their work work. <laughs> all of their source. all of their paid work i should say right is closed source which then means i have to follow up and say like hey is there anything you can send me like a sample something like a piece of something that you're proud of or something we can talk about or anything like that right no i remember like when i applied to thoughtbot in terms of all of the rails code i had written if i didn't happen to just be able to open source like the biggest app i had worked on at my last job i would have not been able to show any actual rails code Right. And I, I think when I applied, I had sent like, I was talking to somebody about the, I sent like a link to my website, which I refreshed frequently. I refreshed the analytics on frequently to see if it, it was hit, <laughs> but it was like, <laughs> but it like walked through, like, here are some open source contributions I've made to Ruby libraries and to rails and to like this other stuff. But then I, I commented that like, I don't have anything I can share publicly. And then they wrote back and they were like, we really need to see something like the same thing I just said, like, can you give me a piece of something? And so I like th hemmed and hawed about it and then ultimately sent them like a good chunk of a Rails project I had been working on for my previous employer after like taking out the stuff that I thought they would consider like not something you should share. Right. And of course, the problem is, right, you can't ask your employer like, hey, have I sufficiently sanitized this right. to share for a potential <laughs> right. job I'm applying for? It's not with you. <laughs> but now that I'm on the other side of that, right, I can see how absurd it is that I would think that like I would be endangering it because like, my process is to like look at a few files and right. get a sense of like what's your a poke around a repo what do you have for tests that's generally my first sure, stop but, like, the, but like regardless of whether or not you're gonna do anything with it has right. nothing to do with how legal it is for somebody to do that yeah that's true i guess i hadn't really thought of legalities around it just more like i, I was considering more the ethics around it which are different sure right? um, but that's right like in all likelihood, you probably did not have the legal right to share the code that you sanitized. I claim ignorance of the law, <laughs> which is always a defense, right? That's how the saying goes. Yeah, that's probably true. And I wonder if, how much of that is true of like all the samples we get, right? Right. And then it comes down to like how much are you willing to risk that coming back to bite you, which is kind of a shitty... Right. And, but we've also taken... So since I applied, 
that has changed a little bit. And that if somebody says like, I really, I can't, I don't have anything I can share with you. If they've given us other indications that they are a good candidate, we'll find some way to do something, right? Where when it comes time to come in for your technical interview, instead of talking about your code, we'll talk about some piece of open source code and talk about like what we like about it, and right. what we don't like about it. Like you didn't write it, but you should still like, if you are capable of having a good conversation about it, then it is reasonable to assume that you would be able to write something like it or know how to write something different from it if it wasn't you know something we thought was good or whatever the case may be. This still doesn't like cover everybody because it assumes that you have time outside of work hours. But uh, one thing that might be a good option for some of those people is to find a um, semi-easy issue on an open source repo that you guys maintain and say like, hey, you want to take a swing at fixing this? Yeah. When I applied, that's what I started with. And I think that's why they bothered to come back and be like, do you have like an app or so, some app code? Because I did say like, here are like two pull requests I've made to ThoughtBot projects and here's a pull request I made to Rails and like things like that. Right. I remember I made my first um, pull request to Rails when I was applying to work at ThoughtBot. <laughs> and like, I, was exci- I was excited because I was like, these people know Rails too. They can maybe give me feedback on my pull request because I'm not getting any. <laughs> yeah. And, and like your point about like people would have to have time on the weekend. Like I am sensitive to that. And that's why I don't expect that every applicant will have like an awesome open source GitHub thing. Right. Yeah. Because we, we're as an industry self-selecting for people who are willing to work nights and weekends. Yes. But it's also true that finding a job while currently employed requires that you do something either while you're working that you're not supposed to be doing or outside of work. Right. You're either going to take time off to try and find it or you're going to do something on nights and weekends or you're going to do something at work when you shouldn't be doing it at work. You should be working for your employer. I mean, if nothing else, it's going to at minimum require taking some vacation time because you have to go to an interview, which presumably takes place during work hours. Right. I remember for like for mine, I just took like an hour and a half long lunch and just came down here and did the interview and went back. But but then we have like the pairing day and that's going to, you know, you got to take a day off for that. Yeah. I mean, I do think it is unfortunate, like, you know, I don't think requiring, at least in our field, right? And this is very, definitely very specific to like we work in tech, but uh, at least in our field, I don't think requiring somebody to take a day off is too out there, but it's kind of unfortunate to, especially if, you know, somebody's going to apply to a dozen places. And actually go through the process with with more than one of them. You know, the requirements of the amount of time you have to take outside of work or from work can definitely add up. Yep. I don't know. I'm not I don't have a a solution or like a and this is how we fix it. But it's like that's unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how that's different from any field, really. Certainly like a white collar job. That's kind of my impression is that you're going to have a few hours worth of interviews for every one of those that you apply to. Sure. Right. Well, and that's the thing is just because our field tends to be people who if you're employed in software, you tend to hopefully be making enough to be able to take a day off. Right. It comes up a lot less frequently, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a long-winded way to say, apply to work with us. <laughs> now you know the types <laughs> of things we're working for. Uh, one person did say they listened to the podcast, and I was like, I commented as I was moving the card along to say, like, they have great taste in podcasts, so we should consider <laughs> it. <laughs> so, you know, um, flattery definitely works. <laughs> What else is going on? What have you been up to besides baby rearing? I don't know if you saw crates.io, the Rust version of rubygems.org is now using diesel in production. I saw you sent me the pull request. It was like take two of trying to get this to go through, and it ultimately did. Did I send you take two? Um, I think maybe you had tried. Maybe you had tried it earlier or something like that. I don't remember. Hold on. Let me. Let me. I'll, we'll put. We'll put this in the show notes. I need to send you a screenshot. I think I still have all of the branches. Or actually, I can just send the screenshot I took earlier. Do you have Slack open? Yep. Slack down right now? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, good. <laughs> Apparently it was down yesterday. I had no idea that it was down because I was on. I'm on. I'm on leave. <laughs> now, I didn't remember sending you like a pull request, but like that's the list of my branches. I've, I've, I've oh, tried maybe you tweeted this. it. You must have tweeted it. Oh, yeah, I did tweet when I opened up the, the pull request. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a thing that I do for quite some time where it's like I needed an app to play with. Right written in rust that did stuff with a database and like i don't have one of those and crates.io seemed like a decent candidate and it actually turned out to be really good for like figuring out apis on diesel because crates.io does some surprisingly complex stuff with the database and so like the fact that we support arbitrary user-defined sql functions is entirely because it's a thing crates.io does in one place (laughs) um 
there are some other features that have been added that were cut, but um, that I've cut because they turned out to be not so well thought out. But like full text search, uh, the fact that I had to support that, and I didn't want that in diesel proper,s I did that as a third party crate. Like that shaped our API a lot to make sure that it was you know extensible for stuff like that. And that's just because it just it's it does a surprising amount of stuff with the database. Mm-hmm. I actually did a pull request today uh, that was not related to the diesel port, but was related to a different pull request that I did, which was also not related to the diesel port, but was kind of sort of to make the diesel port easier. But basically, I got to use window functions for the first time. Oh, basically. So we had this column called max version. Actually, here, I can send you the pull request to the window function thing if you want to see it. A window function performs a calculation across a set of table rows that are somehow related to the current row. For those who want to know what a window function is. Right. So it's basically (laughs) if you want to use an aggregate function without a group by clause. That's what window functions are for. Okay. I hadn't heard it summarized like that, but okay. Yeah. How have you heard it summarized? Like, do you have a a way that makes it make more sense than what I just said? All I have ever heard is we could use a window function for this. And then I go to the Postgres documentation for windowing functions and I go, uh, I don't I don't know. I'm just going to write it the way that I write it with a bunch of subselects. And it's right. And work. so that's exactly like, what this was. It was going to be a subselect. <laughs> and then I was like, this seems like it's going to perform really, really poorly. And so I ran it through the query planner. It had an estimated cost of 7,000 which is high. And then I was like, all right, but is that, does that mean it's actually slow? So I created a data set with like 100 crates, each of which has like one dependency on another crate and then, and then ran the query and it took 11 milliseconds. I'm like, yeah, all right, that's not going to scale well. So basically, the reason this bug, so this, we had a bug that occurred and it was basically just, I saw a thing that, that we, had, we used to have this column called max version, which was on crate, which was the sember, the maximum version number that's been uploaded for that crate. Right. So you might think of it, it's probably the thing that shows up when you list a bunch of crates. Like it's at version 4.6. It's the version that's like next to the crate name. Yep. And in those places, like it's not a big deal. Uh, So basically, there were two things. Number one, I wanted to remove it because the field on the crate struct was of type semver version, Mm. which Mm. isn't string. (laughs) And, uh, the fact that that field lived there meant that I had to manually write implementations of a bunch of traits that normally would just be like derive this trait because I can't say outside of either diesel or the Semver crate, I'm not allowed to say Semver implements from SQL for text columns because of what's called the orphan rule. Yeah. Either the trait that you're implementing has to be local or the type that you're implementing it for has to be local. Right. Uh, so that was my reason that was sort of like and then i came up with i actually found it turned out to be some really good reasoning so i looked into this there was some bugs around the max version column but that was like my original reason for looking into this at all and then i started to notice like the issue with this max version column existing is that it can't be updated by a trigger because you just you can't easily implement the semver semver right yeah in sql and so we have to do it in Rust. And even, even, even if we're talking about a Rails app, right? If mm-hmm. you're actually just relying on a callback to set some column to always be the right thing, it's kind of brittle and kind of bug prone. Counter caches are kind of are, are a bit of a special case because associations are really, really, really only ever actually updated through a known place. But in general, I don't like relying on callbacks to update a thing because like update columns exists. Yep. Or update all exists. SQL exists. Yep. SQL exists. Yeah. So I decided to open a pull request that removed the uh, the max version column and actually introduced a bunch of n plus one queries in a few places because not all of crates IO has been ported to diesel yet. So far, only one endpoint has been. Uh, I'm working on a pull request right now that will port another five over, which was going to be one, but then the tests for that one hit a few other endpoints, and then those endpoints <laughs> had a bunch of tests which hit other endpoints. And I think it's five, but it might actually end up being literally the entire application. It might be we'll twelve. See. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, because it's literally I wanted to port over crates index because that was the like it's one of those you know you know every app has one of these right where it has this endpoint where based on which query parameters are present executes one of sixteen different queries that are all uh, like absurdly complex. Mm-hmm. This is that endpoint, and so it was hurting the most and benefited the most from moving over to diesel and also had an N plus one queries bug from the max version change. But then all of the tests for that hit the crate owner's endpoints, and so I started looking at those, and then I'm like, oh, God, that made 20 other tests fail. So there, there's um, an endpoint, though, called reverse dependencies, which is show me all the crates that depend on this crate, Yep. which had a query that had a line that was uh, where versions.num equals crates.max version. 
And so I assumed that that was there's a very there's a local variable called crate. And so I was I'm assuming I was assuming that it was like actually just joining off of a single row from there. And so I replaced that with a bind parameter and stuck the max version of the crate in there. And what I accidentally did was uh, change the meaning of the query from select all of the crates where the max version of that crate d- depends on this other crate to select all of the crates that had a version with the same number as the max version of this crate that depended on this crate. Select, run that, run that by me one more time. Okay, so like there's a crate called Surday, which had, which its max version is like 0.9.4. Yep. Uh, which should be irrelevant to reverse dependencies. It should be, give me all the crates whose max version depends on Surday. Yep. But instead of I changed the query to was um, for that particular case, give me all of the crates which have a version with the number 0.9.4, which depended on Surday. Okay, so that's a, that's a bug. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it turns out, if you think about this, so I can't even fix this by introducing an N plus one queries bug because the page is paginated. So I can't even just say like, give me 10 versions which depended on this or 10 crates which depended on this like because it's give me t- I can't say give me ten crates which had a version which depended on this and then figure out if it if it was the max version or not because then I might have less than ten mm-hmm. and because I can't do semver versioning in SQL at least not fully to spec there's no way for me to to do that without breaking pagination what I ended up going with was a solution that was almost to spec but not quite. Mm-hmm. And and so basically the end result of the change I made will be if a crate has only uploaded versions which are pre-release versions and some of those versions depended on a crate but others didn't, mm-hmm. it's completely non-deterministic whether or not that crate will show up in reverse dependencies. Huh. Um, because basically, you know, semver versioning, a non-pre-release version is always greater than a pre-release version. Like mm-hmm. more or less no matter what. So for my convert this string to a thing that SQL knows how to order, which will be semi-close to semver version ordering, I treat pre-release versions as null. Right. Okay. And that's mainly because the, the, the pre-release portion of the version can either be an integer or a string. And like representing that in SQL just seemed like a nightmare. Uh, anyway, so the window function here is used for a query that's kind of like a, a thing that I feel like I've wanted quite a lot but never been able to really do, which is just interjoin on the maximum version for each crate. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what the window function is for. I interjoin on versions, which also selects this window function. I'm not using max here directly because the type that I happen to use for some versions, like I didn't want to implement a max function for it. So instead, I'm selecting row number and then ordering. Ordering by it, yep. Because... For some reason, max doesn't work for everything that order by works for, which seems wrong, but sure. And then just asserting and then selecting where row number equals one. Probably what what I would have written were I not using a custom data type would have been max two semver version whatever partition by create ID, mm-hmm. and then where num equals max num. Okay. How are you finding this brave new world where you're writing Postgres types? I mean, I wasn't even writing like a real Postgres type. It was a it's a composite type. Right. I actually was looking at writing a real type because something I kind of wanted to do just to also kind of flesh out the support for writing full-on custom types in Postgres with Diesel. Like, that was the thing I wanted to do, but this app is hosted on Heroku. And if you want to write a full-on custom type, the absolute minimum that you have to provide is an input and output function for it from strings, which you cannot do in SQL. It needs to be written in a language which is capable of dealing with the concept of a C string. Okay. You have to write a custom extension, and because this is hosted on Heroku, you can't load an arbitrary extension, right. which kind of sucks because like, it would actually be really trivial for me to take the Rust Semver crate and have its semantics be applied to a Postgres type because like Rust can pretend it's C really, really easily. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But yeah, I mean, composite types, they're fine. Uh, I mean, it's literally, it's a tuple. Like, it's treated as if it were a row in another table for like, a row in a table is the, is the same type. Okay. So outside of this, uh, if you only have pre-release versions, everything's working fine? We haven't deployed it yet, unless somebody's deployed it since we've been recording. The tests are passing, although the tests are not as comprehensive as I would like. Ah, there we go. Okay, this this looks more correct. The The issue was opened by somebody who, who works on the crate called Surday. <laughs> His issue was, I refuse to believe that, that Surday only has two reverse dependencies. <laughs> and I can tell somebody deployed it because I went to survey reverse dependencies and it's showing one out of 10 of 700 reverse dependencies. 
Why does Rust ORM get returned in a search for diesel? Does it depend on diesel? Uh, I can't imagine. It does not. Maybe it's in... Uh, it is in its readme, is uh, why it shows up. Uh, okay. I was looking at all of the various packages now that are related to diesel. So how much of those, how many of these do you actually maintain? And um, how many of these are community provided? Diesel, diesel CLI, begins... diesel code gen. I know that's all you. Nickel diesel. That's Nickel diesel's not me. Basically, uh, all of these are me, except for except for R2D2, Nickel Diesel's not me, and Rust Arms definitely not me. Yeah. Well, it's good to see a little ecosystem popping up, even if it's mostly you. <laughs> no, there is starting to be an ecosystem popping up. There's a bunch of stuff out there that people are working on that have been. I know that they're working on because they've been asking for advice and have asked for like more than just how do I get started. Um, that hasn't been released yet. So cool. We'll see. The one that, that I think will be really interesting to see if it pans out, which I haven't checked up on in a little while, but somebody was working on a Cassandra adapter. Mm-hmm. Apparently Cassandra has a language that's like close enough to ANSI SQL that Diesel could work there. So cool. that'd be interesting. Yeah. But yeah, I got to deal with uh, the, the more the more fun one for um, Crates.io was... Uh, so we switched over to use Diesel's migration infrastructure, mm-hmm. which is all fine, but then you, you run migrations with Diesel migration run. Right. And then Carol's like, oh, uh, we run our migrations in the proc file. Can you change the proc file to use diesel? And I did that. I'm like, wait a second. Where's that binary going to come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, and then I realized, oh, I have to build a custom build pack <laughs> to do this. Mm-hmm. And like actually compiling diesel CLI from scratch in release mode on a low end AWS instance is not... Not Swift? Not, yeah. So, like, <laughs> I also want to implement caching for this thing. <laughs> nice. No, it's one of those things where it's just, like, because other than Rails, and, and I guess RSpec, but, like, ignoring things that are development only, mm-hmm. things that are in your gem file, which would appear in production, other than Rails, how many things do you think there are, would you say there are that, like, have executables? Uh, of things that are in my gem file, have executables that I need at runtime. Or on the server, you know what I mean? I mean, I guess it doesn't, if they're gems, it doesn't particularly matter. I can just bundle exec whatever, right? Right, but that's like a side effect of the fact that bundler conflates dependencies for require with binaries and doesn't really care, or or not Mm. binaries because it's Ruby, but executable files and doesn't really care about the difference, right? right? The only thing I can think of off off the top of my head that like I know I'm using at runtime is not in my gem file. would be like image magic or something like that. Right, but that's not even a Ruby, right? That's not right. a Ruby gem. That requires Image Magic to be on the machine, right, which right. Just, just Heroku happens to have. Right. Uh, and so, like, Cargo has Cargo install, which is like install this binary, mm-hmm. but doesn't, you know, separates out like things that your code needs to use versus things that you want to run from the command line. Okay. And doesn't actually have a way to specify like a thing that you want to run at the command line in its dependencies right now. So it's just one of those like. Oh, that's slightly more complicated than I expected it to be. So it doesn't have the notion currently, or maybe ever, I don't know, of like, in the scope of my application's dependencies, execute this binary. Right, because like binaries aren't, like, you know, it's all pretty much always a development tool. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, Rails, I mean, like, if you look at your Heroku proc file, or whatever they call it, is it proc file? Is that what we call it still? Yeah, it's proc file. Right, you'll have Rails server in your proc file. Mm-hmm. Which, right, that's not a problem because in the Rust application, that's just your binary. Or Puma, whatever, yeah. Right, but that's but in a Rust application, like, you start up a web server from your main function. Okay. Right, that could that could just as easily be rack up config.ru. Okay. Which yep. actually is rack, or not rack. Well, yeah, rack is. I mean, it could, okay, it could also be uh, Ruby boot.rb. Mm-hmm. Rake jobs work is in my proc file currently. Bundle exec right. rake Rakes jobs. comes with Ruby. Yep. You also can have later versions in your gem file. Rake is de- definitely comes with Ruby. That's and all. Then, I and then you use Rails to run migrations. Yep. That's all. And that's all you use the Diesel CLI tool for. And the one thing, one thing that does differ from Diesel versus Rails that I was actually thinking about just doing is that you can just. It's very easy to run your migrations programmatically with Diesel. Uh, like we have a public API of programmatically working with migrations because just why not? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. And then. Uh, Dealing with other little weird tidbits like um, we end up hitting the max slug size. 
Ah, yes. This is a thing that happens every once in a while with uh, with Rails apps as well. Which it just it, it mostly seemed to be a thing that had bad caching. But I'm also I also added up some numbers. I'm pretty sure they're wrong. But it was just too perfect because I noticed that with diesel, like assuming everything's doing what it was supposed to, or not doing everything it was supposed to, but copying more data than it needed to over, but wasn't like copying. Basically, what was happening is uh, the build pack for Rust was caching the build directory entirely and never clearing it out. Okay. So it's kind of like imagine that you you uh, are caching the directory that your gems are installed into. Mm-hmm. But like you don't clear that directory out when gemfile.lock changes. So Correct. the cache is ultimately just going to have every version of every gem you've ever depended on. Right. That is actually the, like if you use Bundler and tell it to like store your dependencies in vendor, right, then that's what it does. by default it does that. There's another option you can say that is like also keep it clean for me. Right. But that's what this was doing. But then also it was like all you really need are the executables from your build directory. You don't need all of the unless you're dynamic unless something was dynamically linked, which shouldn't end up in that directory at that point. Right after everything's been linked in the final executables, it's really only the binaries that you need. You mm-hmm. don't need all the intermediate artifacts. But what this was doing was just copying the entire build directory over. Right. But assuming it wasn't doing that, like let's just pretend it cleared, it busted the cache every time cargo.lock changed. Mm-hmm. The size of that directory went up on my machine from 73 megs to 86 megs. And I was curious because we, we ran Heroku repo cache purge, yep. but the log size was still showing up as too much. We ended up eventually doing repo reset and then redeploying. This was for staging, not for uh, production. Right. And then that ended up fixing it. But while we were waiting for the build to run, because when you completely purge everything, it takes a while. I was just looking at it. I'm like, okay, but purging the cache, that should have solved the issue. And I only brought it up by 13 megs. I wonder if the slug is just actually too big now mm-hmm. because it's copying this whole directory over. Oh, and actually, no, uh, resetting the repo also didn't fix it. We did have to switch over to a branch, a fork of this build pack, which copied only the executables over. <laughs> and I don't know where all this is coming from because it says the slug is only 48 megs after compression when we switched the branch that only copies the executables over. And you have 300 megs or something, right? Yeah, and the- I can't imagine that like on Linux, that build directory is three times as large as it is on Mac. Mm-hmm. But I did happen to notice if I ran du-sh to get recursive directory size, if I ran that with the Bower uh, directory and the node modules directory, <laughs> and I added 73 to that number, which was before diesel, what the size of that directory was on my machine, it was 298 megs. So it's all Bower and node modules. It can't be. Like, there's no way the node build pack is copying over intermediate build artifacts like that. Because you don't need that after you build the final the final single JS file. I mean, I wouldn't say no way. <laughs> there's Neither a way. Neither would I. And I kind of looked at it. And I, and I looked at the source. And I couldn't quite tell. Mm. But I was just like, that's really funny if it was 298 megs before. It seems like if that were the case, that somebody would have hit this before and there would be like an open issue about it or something. Right. Yeah, I think. Because like this is just, it's just an Ember app. Like it's, it's kind of hilarious that an Ember app has 300 megs worth of dependencies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that's I'll believe it. Yeah, I'll believe it. But uh, yeah, so that was, that was a fun one. And then just, uh, oh, the other one was I noticed that the, the library that's used for connection pooling in Rust R2D2. R2D2 has some um, questionably named settings and defaults where it basically, by default, will try to eagerly populate the connection pool and always keep the maximum number of connections in the pool idle, which turned out to be a problem because I had to introduce two connection pools, one for the old library and one for the new library. Uh, And I set the new library to be the same size as the old libraries, 10 connections in, in production. Turns out the free tier of a Heroku database has a 20 connection limit which mm-hmm. actually appears to be a 19 connection limit. <laughs> <laughs> and we are like, why the hell is this not booting? Interesting. Yeah. So it's actually 19? Yeah. It's oh, not either like that or, something... Or it, a connection yeah. got kept alive from like running migrations or something. Or could it just be something in the Heroku infrastructure that's like grabbing a connection to the database Maybe. while deploying or All I know is that once I realized those eagerly populated connection pool are... App server would try and establish 20 connections immediately on boot and would crash if it could not establish 20 connections on boot, which seems bad and like a really, really bad default. And I was looking through the code and there's a setting called min idle 
which is like, we will try to keep this number of connections idle at all time. And if you don't set it, it defaults to the size of the entire pool. But it's also not min idle. It's actually max idle because when you return a connection to the pool, if it has more idle connections than min idle, it immediately closes that connection. Yep, that sounds like max to me. Yeah, so it's not a connection pool. It's a connection limiter. Sounds like you have some open source contributions to make. <laughs> yeah. After you get done your build pack, then you can f- look at the node one, see if you can figure that one out, and then you can go and submit some patches to R2-D2. Um, but it was, it was okay. We only briefly took down production, uh, <laughs> and, and the reason we took down production was because of the web task tries to run migrations. And basically, when I, I ported over to Diesel's migration infrastructure, I wrote some really hacky code that like had this thing that pretended it was a database connection. But the execute function wrote whatever SQL was given to a file. <laughs> uh, and if there were any bind parameters, panicked. And so I dumped all the existing migrations from their old migration infrastructure, wrote a little thing to port over like their table, which kept track of what had been run to Diesel's table, and then added a migration to make their schema compatible with Diesel because Diesel doesn't support tables that have no primary key. Yeah, I saw that. There were a bunch of tables that just should have had a primary key but didn't. Mm-hmm. but like had columns that either had a unique constraint that should have been the primary key mm-hmm. or just had no constraint but had an obviously intended to be unique constraint on there. Does Diesel support composite primary keys? It does. Okay. And all of these tables, except one, there was one case which was, it was a metadata table which had one column and one row. Mm-hmm. So I just made that column the primary key, but there's really no primary. Like it actually, pro- if it's if it really wants to be a metadata table, it should probably be a two column table, key and value, and then key should be the primary key. Right. And both should be strings. But anyway, all of the other ones were composite primary keys. Uh, so your your solution was to allow the composite primary key and not to just be like I'm gonna throw an ID on here because right, I yeah. I want everything to have an ID. I just declared the composite primary key as actually the primary key. Okay. Because in a lot of cases it was either there was either an ID column. And a unique constraint, or there might not have been an ID column, and there might not have been a unique constraint. Uh, and the ones where there weren't wasn't a unique constraint were the fun ones, because as is always the case, where you're like, there's this obviously intended constraint here, we mm-hmm. should add a data integrity constraint. And as always happens when you do that, we found a bunch of invalid data in the production database. Yes, I, I get that all the time when I come on to like older apps, and I'm like, let's add some foreign keys here, and it applies just fine in development mode where you have no data, and then you try and deploy, and it's like, nope. And then it's like, okay, let's fix that. And then you deploy yep. again. You're like, nope, okay, let's. <laughs> yeah. And then you get to play the fun, like, which one of these two rows am I going to delete? Like, <laughs> oh, well, so here, here was the really fun one. So the one that caused had the most invalid rows was the crates keywords table, mm-hmm. which is exactly what it sounds like. Join between crates and keywords. I had a crate ID column and a keyword ID column, and nothing else. When there's a duplicate row in there, there's no way to uniquely identify one. Right. And you can't limit a delete query. So there's no way to actually delete just one of them. So we had to get, just go in and manually delete both and then re-add one. Wow. Is there really no way you can do this in SQL? Could you use like a subselect with row num? Yeah. So I was going to say there's a magic Postgres internal row number column, which is right. always present, which we could have used. But figuring out how to do that and trusting that to do the right thing was... <laughs> It was it was only like a half dozen rows or something, so okay. it just wasn't that hard to just like you could do the query to find out which ones were the problems really easily, but that was just like yeah, simple enough in a transaction. Delete all the duplicates and then reinsert one copy of the duplicates. I don't even uh, Carol's one who did it, not me. I don't think she no did transaction. transaction. I think she just like those okay, were missing so keywords for for a few seconds. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned so that you mentioned that it actually brought down production very briefly when you tried to deploy. Is that as big a deal as bringing oh, yeah. down Ruby gems would be? Yep. Like to be, so people have run have like deploy time dependencies on crates.io as like a matter of course kind of thing. Like so, like bringing down you Ruby gems. I'm, act- I'm actually not because sh- you know, the index is hosted on GitHub. Okay. So I'm actually not sure if crates.io being down means that you could not build your application. Right. That's the thing that would be nice to avoid, but you can only avoid by caching your dependencies. Is like Right. Well, of course, if you just have your index cached, like, right. it's not a problem. I'm, right. I'm not actually... Because, yeah, I, I definitely know it does go to GitHub to get, like, the super, super packed form super cacheable, which is why it doesn't need to be on the application server. Mm-hmm. Here's all of the dependencies of this version of this 
I wonder how many package managers use GitHub as a form of a CDN. Pretty much all of them. <laughs> right. Oh, you know what? I think that's the thing that, that would cause you prevent you from building your app. So we, Crates.io does not use GitHub as a CDN. It does use it to host the index because Git makes a ton of sense as like a way to host that. Mm-hmm. Um, because we actually just want deltas for new crates. The crates themselves are not on GitHub. Right, right. But it is Those still a CDN, right? It is a, that is content that you are using. You are using GitHub's ability to distribute quickly <laughs> and well, reliably. Well, sort of, but like it's not like it's all of the source code of all right. these crates or even all the binaries of all right. these crates. It's, it's one file, right. It's not even one. It's actually a lot of files. Like Git, oh, okay, it, right, it's right, not right. even so much that we, that we, we want to use Git for this, that we want to use Git for this. Right. And GitHub is a, is a way to host Git. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it's not like we're transferring, you know, if you're using CocoaPods, right, you'll, you'll very frequently be getting several megabyte downloads from GitHub mm-hmm. because that's where all of the actual pods end up coming from. Mm-hmm. But for cargo, it's just the dependency information, not the actual packages. Cool. Those do come from Crates.io. So yes, for that very brief moment, you would not, unless you had the dependencies cached locally, right? You would not have been able to build your application. What a jerk! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we took down staging for like three hours. So that's okay. Because <laughs> in my little thing where I migrated the migration infrastructure, they had their own schema migration stable. I moved all of that over to the diesel schema migration stable, and then dropped their table because like we're done with it now. Mm-hmm. And then if it turns out like after that, oh, but there's another problem. The app's not booting. <laughs> <laughs> turns out rollback doesn't work now. Yep. So, you know, we removed, we'll still drop the table probably in, in a few days. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Your parental leave is entirely different than my parental leave was. <laughs> <laughs> I need something to do in between feeding. She just yeah. sleeps right now. Yeah, I just watch Dexter. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I guess maybe I should have been doing something a little more productive. No, I need I need to do less computers. <laughs> I know this. No, I mean, if you're enjoying it and you're still taking care of the baby and you're getting your shifts of sleep, then, you know, so be it. I mean, Whatever. I, you know. Don't make anybody feel bad about what you spend your time on. I was just joking around no, with you. No, it's just, it's like, so I have been checking my GitHub notifications very frequently, but like... I don't click on Rails stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just nice. It's nice to work on shit and not feel obligated like I do with my job. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is open these issues and pull requests and ping you on them. So <laughs> I'll look at them in July. You can promptly ignore them until July. Right. Yeah. No, right. somebody will. Uh, they won't make it into 5.1 because I think 5.1 is in beta now, right? Yep. Beta 1. I don't think there's beta yeah. 2 yet, but yeah. Or RC or anything like that. But yeah, there's some exciting stuff in there. I think we've talked about it before, but we should talk about it again. I'm pretty excited about some stuff, but let's not do that right now because it's yeah. we've been going for an hour now. Yeah. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> a lot of apologies to Tom this episode. <laughs> All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 103. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore Bikeshed, email us at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bikeshed, and we'll see you next time.